Well, as the children are going, a number of weeks ago I started just a little mini, mini series, and that is I wanted to spend this time that we have just for the first couple of minutes um, shepherding you on an issue that you wouldn't necessarily know unless you're just taught, and that is how to listen to sermons, how to listen to an expository sermon. And so we've been doing some little lessons just for a moment before we really get to our main topic this morning. And I've given you a definition of an expository sermon. It's a message from a man of God which explains the scriptures and applies the scriptures to the glory of God and to produce Christ's likeness. And in no particular order, we've been doing little lessons on how to listen to an expository sermon. We have said, come with a disciple's attitude. We've said, don't waste the end of a message by checking out mentally. We have said, remember that the authority of the word outranks feeling led. We have also said that preaching should engage you with the body of Christ, not disengage you. It should make you uh, form relationships. We've also said that we are to come to the preached word with a spirit of need. And I want to just give you three more little tips, little lessons on how to listen to an expository sermon So the sixth little tip is listen for the theology inherent in the passage. Listen for the theology inherent in the passage. Every text of Scripture tells you a truth or a set of truths about God. What God wants you to know. What are some truths that can add to the storehouse of what you know about the Lord? Sometimes the the preacher will tell you openly what those truths are. Sometimes you have to listen for it. It's, It's worth it. It's worth it to make that effort to work for it. So listen for the theology inherent in the passage. Here's a seventh tip, and it's kind of contradictory, but let that theology drive you to worship. But let that theology drive you to worship. There is a genuine spiritual danger of loving the study of God more than you love God. And so we want to understand that theology should drive us to God, not drive us to more theology. Greater knowledge should lead to love, to adoration, to humility, whereas just knowledge alone, all it does is lead to arrogance. And so we want to understand that let that theology drive you to worship. And then one more tip, and that is to genuinely determine a course of action genuinely determine the course of action. At the very least, rivet some of the parts of the message that the Holy Spirit used for you, rivet them into your heart, and pray for the Lord to adhere his word to your heart all the more. At the most, make a plan of action when confronted with a change opportunity. Very rarely in this pulpit will you hear a sermon where there is not an opportunity for you to change something. Let a sermon be a biblical counseling session. In biblical counseling, we give homework. And so you take the homework home and do the homework. So with those little tips, it's my hope that you continue to grow and develop as a listener that is pleasing to the Lord. So now you have a chance to apply this immediately at this moment. If you like history at all, uh, you might be familiar with a young woman named Susanna Thompson. Susanna Thompson married the love of her life, but she didn't marry him for wealth or for his class or his clothing or his appearance. She married a young country preacher whom she said, quote, has long, badly trimmed hair. She wasn't immediately a fan of his preaching either. She said, quote, his countryfied manner and speech excites more regret than reverence from his own wife. But when she married this young country preacher, she didn't know what she was getting into because Susanna Thompson married a very young Charles Spurgeon who by his early 20s was a household name in both England and America in the mid-19th century. And she would soon find herself as the pastor's wife of the largest church on the planet at the age of 22. The young Spurgeon couple, they faced criticism in the, in the press And poor old Charles, he just couldn't handle it. And so Susanna would often hide the morning paper to keep Charles from seeing the the headlines that were about him, particularly the negative ones. Charles struggled with physical illness. So did Susanna. Charles struggled with major depression. But one of the factors besides their undying love for Christ that grounded them and kept them connected to one another, connected to reality, was the birth of their twin boys, Charles and Thomas. 
And the twins were just a month old when Spurgeon, already wildly popular at the age of 22, he had to rent the Surrey Garden Music Hall to hold 12,000 listeners to his sermon in addition to the 10,000 that were gathered outside. And this happened on October 19th, 1856. And at six o'clock in the evening, somebody, whether they thought it was a joke or whether they really thought this was happening, somebody shouted, fire, the balconies are giving way. And as people tried to escape, the panic caused mass pandemonium. And when the crowd finally dispersed, 28 people were seriously injured and seven were dead. Spurgeon was so distraught that he went home and he wouldn't speak to anybody and he literally was laying on the floor for days. He couldn't even look at his Bible. The text he was preaching that evening was Proverbs 3, verse 33, the curse of the Lord is in the house of the wicked. And he determined he would never preach that text again and he never did. It took him two weeks to be able to enter his own pulpit again. The Lord was faithful to sustain him through this horrible time, which by his own account, he never fully recovered from. But the sustaining joy for him, besides the Lord, was the ability to go home and to see his twin boys and to just do the simplicity of family. Charles and Susanna were unified in their parenting of the boys and his preaching often reflected this. In particular, what was important to them was the imparting of truth to their sons. Let me just give you some quotes from Spurgeon about parenting. Train your child in the way in which you should have gone yourself. That's a great way to think about this. He said, teach the children the three R's, ruin, redemption, and regeneration. He said, let his first little prayers be noticed by you. He said, let us from the beginning mingle the name of Jesus with their ABCs. Let them read their first lessons from the Bible. And then finally, he said, tell the child that he is dead in trespasses and sins. Let there be no doubt about his natural condition. What wonderful godly advice. You notice the emphasis that they had. That is the imparting of divine truth. And I tell you this this morning to help direct our thoughts once again to Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. The text will be in this morning in which we've been examining just phrase by phrase here what we're calling parenting for God's glory. Parenting for God's glory. And hopefully I've already made the case to you that this is not just a series for parents. This is a series for Christians because all of God's word is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training for righteousness. And that also this gives us insight into how God, our Father, deals with us. And so this is not just for parents. This is for believers. And so let's review once again Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And we've been going through this phrase by phrase and examining some principles here. We've examined the principle of heart motivation. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. We've examined the principle of respectful submission. Honor your father and mother. We have looked at the principle of natural outcomes. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. We've looked at the principle of gracious relationship. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And we've looked at the principle of consistent consequences. Bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. Well, today we want to look at the principle of divine truth. The principle of divine truth to bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. Now, we already established that grammatically the phrase, the prepositional phrase there, of the Lord in verse 4 modifies both discipline and and instruction. We said that the discipline of the Lord primarily refers to the giving of proper consequences as ordained and commanded by God. These are the things that the Lord commands. They are from Him. They are of the Lord. They are consequences that are intended to curb natural sinful behavior and to train the hearts of children to be wary of evil. And so then he says to bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. Now, we might define the instruction of the Lord as simply providing teaching to correct behavior and belief. Providing teaching to correct behavior and belief. It is very verbal in nature. 
The aspect of warning and lecture and reprimand and teaching is included in this instruction. Now, yes, some of you had mothers and fathers that could instruct you with one particular look of the face. They could say a thousand words that can threaten your very life just simply with one glare. But ultimately, words have to be used. This is verbal instruction. It includes also, though, instruction by example. Since the fact is, is that children are looking at everything you say and everything you do, and they're taking that example in. So what I want to do for our topical study this morning is talk to you about the role of instruction of divine truth in the life of the family. And so let me just kind of give you a few nails in the wall here that we'll hang our thoughts on. The first one is we're going to look at a definition of truth briefly. Secondly, I want to spend most of our time today talking about the benefits of truth. And then finally, we'll just give you some thoughts on making truth a regular part of your family's culture by imparting the truth. So a definition of truth, benefits of truth, and imparting the truth. So first, a definition of truth. What are we working with this morning? Now, before we get to a definition of truth, we do have to say that your job as parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles, whoever is interacting with your kids, is to just teach about life in general. That's not exactly what we're talking about here. We'll get to that in a moment. But that does uh, find some usefulness that you, you teach common sense truths. Things like you should change the oil in your car unless you want to buy a new one. Things like don't let the engine uh, stay running in certain parts of town. Just this wisdom. Uh, things like being late to work consistently can relieve you of the pressure of having a job. Just basic common sense things or the wisdom of your family dentist. Ignore your teeth and they will go away. All the things that we want to know. Uh, really important wisdom like leg warmers went out in the 90s. Don't wear those anymore. Uh, bad breath can destroy relationships. These are, these are normal things that we need to know. Uh, wisdom like Disneyland is, dollar for dollar, the worst way to spend your money, yet totally worth it. it. It takes years of depth of understanding to grasp these truths. Don't wear white pants to a church picnic that includes a tug of war. This is just common sense. A grilled cheese sandwich tastes terrible cold. That's it's important truths. When speaking to a law enforcement officer who has pulled you over, that's not the time to tell the latest knock-knock joke that you learned. Don't do that. Or maybe teaching them the famous African proverb, if your enemy wrongs you by each of his children a drum. Okay. In other words, you have wisdom to offer that's just common sense. How to tie your shoes how to do this, how to do that, how to, to function in the world. Those are important, but those are not divine truths. Let me give you a definition of truth for today, and that is the revelation of God and how it is applied. The revelation of God and how it's applied. All truth has accompanying actions. So it is the revelation of God and how it's applied. And the revelation of God is given us singularly in the word of God, in the Bible, the revealed mind of, mind of Christ in written form. Now, for the most part, I know that at Grace Bible Church, I'm preaching to the choir. And there's a comfort to that on, on one degree. But on the other hand, I also don't want you to be complacent about the importance of truth. Because sometimes we can become arrogant because we think we have a lot of it. But it takes discipline to continue to impart truth to our own families. I don't generally have to convince you about the importance of truth. But I want to drive these nails in a little bit more deeply and so I want to spend some time exploring together the benefits of truth. I'm going to mention a lot of scripture. You might make some notes of the references. I don't think you'll be able to keep up in turning there. Because how you view truth is less important than the actual process of imparting that truth. Because if you have conviction, then customs will follow. Does that make sense? That if you love and cherish and, and guard the truth of God, it will naturally come out in your family. So I want to spend most of the time convincing you that there are benefits to truth. We'll see how many we can get to. First of all, truth points us to God's character. Truth points us to God's character. Romans 1, verses 18 and 19, familiar to us. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress what? The truth. What is the truth that they're suppressing? It means to restrain something, to hold it back. The truth that they're suppressing, 
for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. That's the truth they're suppressing, the knowledge of God, who he is. In fact, Paul goes on to say that creation gives witness to the fact that God possesses eternal power and divine nature, that all of those things are clearly seen just in creation itself. And so at the core of what we call divine truth, it begins first with just the divine, with God himself, that if you really want to know what truth is, at the essence of truth is not just statements made by God, it is the very nature and the essence of God himself. It's not just that God tells us the truth, it is that God is truth. So we have to start there. We see this fact also serving to confirm and to prove the deity of Jesus Christ, that if we're going to look at the truth of God's character, we have to examine the truth of Christ's character. John 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That he is the one who is filled with truth. In fact, Jesus said himself in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth. He doesn't just tell the truth. He doesn't know the truth. He is the truth. And there's a very simple, but I think profound application to this benefit of truth. And that is to know abiding and genuine truth. We, we don't just search out what God says. We search out who God is. That we look to his person. We look to his character that we let scripture speak to us in that it's saturated with his essence with his attributes with his qualities that we see God revealed as solitary in his place as God that he possesses perfect knowledge of all things he is completely supreme over all things he is sovereign and the mover of all things he is completely unchanging completely unchangeable that he is as scripture says often holy and holy and holy that he is all powerful that he's perfectly faithful perfectly good, perfectly great, perfectly gracious, perfectly merciful, perfectly kind, that he's righteous, he's just, his wrath will be poured out on all sin and his grace poured out on all who would believe in him. That's who you look to for truth. And let me tell you something. We see truth with a capital T when we look to who God is, not just what he says. And if I could apply this to your home, if in your home you limit truth to what God tells you to do, you will ultimately become legalists in your home because you've reduced God to a set of rules instead of to the sovereign of the universe. This was the cry of Moses to God. Moses, who had received the law of God. Moses, who had spoken to God as a man speaks to a friend. Moses, who knew more about God than any man alive, you know what? He begged the Lord in Exodus thirty-three eighteen. He said, please show me your glory. Now, how did God answer Moses in chapter 34? Yes, he passed before him. There was a, some sort of physical manifestation, but that's not how God defined his glory. The way he defined his glory was with words. And he said this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. How did God reveal his glory? He gave words that describe his character. And so truth points us to God's character. Let me give you another benefit of truth. Truth is experienced in gospel obedience. Truth is experienced in gospel obedience. In Romans 2, beginning in verse 7, the Apostle Paul says this, that to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now, the Apostle Paul is not saying that we do good things to be given eternal life. He's stating the truth in the negative that to be given eternal life, you must obey the truth. What does that mean? Well, three other times in the New Testament, we get a, a, a more specific definition 
Three times in the New Testament, the writers speak of obeying the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ has died for our sins. We just read this morning, Romans 10, verse 16. The Apostle Paul is making the case here that not all ethnic Jews are saved because some are rebellious. And he says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8, the Apostle Paul asserts that when Christ returns, he is coming in judgment. And he says that he'll come with his angels, quote, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Why will people be sent to hell? Because they did not obey the gospel. In 1 Peter 4, the Apostle Peter asserts that even believers suffer under the sovereign plan of God, that we are being sanctified, and this is at times painful. He calls this the judgment in the household of God. It's not judgment under condemnation, it's judgment under sanctification. But then Peter goes on to say that if God inflicts pain on those who have obeyed the gospel, he says in verse 17, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And so truth is expressed in obedience to the gospel, gospel obedience. In Acts chapter 2, there's a question posed to the apostle Peter. He preached such a stunning sermon that he couldn't even finish. The congregation started yelling back at him, what do we do, what do we do? And he explained perfectly what it means to obey the gospel. When When the crowds of Jews at Pentecost were convicted of their sin and convicted that they were wrong before God and their standing before God was was not right. They cried out to Peter, brothers, what shall we do? In Acts 2.38, Peter gave a very simple answer. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That is gospel obedience. And of course, obeying the truth means obeying the one who is the truth, Jesus Christ himself, who is the singular way to the Father, the singular way to salvation. Without the truth, we're lost, we're hopeless. Listen, no human being will logically figure out God's plan of salvation. It's never been done. It can't happen. The truth is experienced in gospel obedience. Let me give you another benefit to truth. Truth replaces selfishness in loving relationships. Truth replaces selfishness in loving relationships. Now, what do we mean by this? Well, we see this instruction in in 1 Corinthians 13 in Paul's famous litany of 15 qualities of godly love between people in the church. And he gives a contrast in verse 6. He says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with what? The truth that the pursuit of godly truth in the context of Christian relationships is high, it's a lofty ideal, and it is the expression of true love. Now, what do we mean by this? Well, it means that in my relationships, my goal is not to be right. My goal is to align myself with God who is always right. That to rejoice with the truth in the context of a loving relationship is to rejoice in seeing the right thing done even if that means you admitting fault, you changing direction, you repenting of sin, you rejoice in seeing the right thing done. And this is phenomenal. This is an amazing concept. It means that the key to rejoicing in your relationships is not to treat a relationship like a, a contest to be won, but to treat a relationship as the proving ground for truth. That your goal is to see truth prevail, not to see you prevail. And if the right thing to do is to admit wrong and confess sin, you literally rejoice and revel in this. That is a phenomenal idea. And the impact of this high and lofty attitude toward the truth is that you've replaced selfishness with truth. You know, in counseling, if a person will take an honest look at an action that's a stumbling block since counseling very often is about needing to do something I don't want to do. If the truth about that hesitation is revealed, then the path to obedience is opened up and there's great freedom in this and you can rejoice with the truth instead of basking in your own self-importance. For example, if a man says, I don't want to be loving to my wife because it 
always backfires and she verbally tears me down. What's the truth? The truth is you don't want to obey the Lord because your obedience is not getting you the instant gratification that your selfish little heart desires. That's the truth. I wouldn't say selfish little heart in person. I just think that. Someone else might say, I don't want to discipline my child every time he sins. I feel like he's going to hate me. What's the truth? You don't want to obey the Lord because you're more concerned about your child's love than you are about God's love. A church member says, I don't want to serve the Lord in the church because certain things are not to my liking, so I will wait for that to change. What's the truth? The truth is you don't want to serve because your own personal feelings and gratification are more important than being a quality citizen of the kingdom of God. See, if you tell yourself the truth, it replaces selfishness in your relationships. And we could go all day. But if in your relationships you stop rejoicing at your own wrongdoing and instead rejoice in the truth, truth replaces selfishness because your analysis of truth is now based on an analysis of the character of God that you desire to reflect. Let me give you another benefit. Truth is the pathway to Christ-likeness. Truth is the pathway to Christ-likeness. Listen, I've staked my career on that because it is the imparting of truth to you that I believe creates Christ-likeness. There's a very simple progression that Jesus taught in his great high priestly prayer. It's a simple 11-word statement in Greek, nine words in English, very small, powerful, power-packed statement. He said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What does it mean to sanctify them, to, to set them apart, to cleanse you, to purify you, to change you? And so there's this logical progression that Jesus gives. It's, it's really almost a syllogism, which is a three-part logical statement. And here's the syllogism. Christ-likeness occurs in the truth of God. The truth of God is the word of God. Therefore, Christ-likeness occurs through the word of God. That's his logic. Well, speaking of the word of God, Psalm 119 is filled with promises concerning the sanctifying work of the word of God. I'll just give you a few. The word of God is the path to pure actions. It's the path to pure actions. Psalm 119 verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Another promise, the word is the path to pure thoughts. It's the path to pure thoughts. Verse 11 says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I've put God's word into my heart instead of impure thoughts. Another promise, the word is the path to stop lying. The word is the path to stop lying. Listen, in counseling here in this very church, we deal with that all the time, that our own sin leads us to be dishonest about it. But the word is the path to stop lying. Verse 29, put false ways far from me. And the the implied word is instead, graciously teach me your law. Here's another sanctifying work. The, The word is the path to stop stealing. The word is the path to stop stealing. 119 verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. It keeps us from greed, keeps us from selfishness. Another promise, the word is the path to godly priorities. It's the path to godly priorities. Verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, implied instead, give me life in your ways, in your word. Another promise, the word is the path to confession of sin. You know, when I deal with somebody and they don't want to deal with their own sin and I say, let's read the Bible, they don't like to read the Bible. Why? Because when I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. In other words, the disgusting nature of my own sin is in contradiction to the word of God. And when I turn to the word of God, it convicts me of my ways. Another promise, the word is the path to keeping the right company, keeping the right company. Psalm 119, I'm a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts, that the more you're in the word and you love the word of God and you're saturated in the word of God, you want to be around other people who are like that. Here's another promise. The word is the path to a godly response to suffering. It's the path to a godly response to suffering. Verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Listen, we're not even halfway through. 
And it's already crystal clear that, that truth is the pathway to Christ's likeness. It is that pathway. Let me give you another benefit. The truth is our spiritual treasure. The truth is our spiritual treasure. Paul reminded Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15 that, quote, the church of the living God is a pillar and buttress of what? The truth. The point is, the truth is what we protect, it's what we shield, it's what we cherish. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.20 to guard the deposit of the truth. To guard that deposit. One of the qualifications of an elder, according to Titus 1 verse 9, is that, quote, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. That he guards the truth. Why? So he gives instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. The truth of God is such a spiritual treasure that the disciples, the night Jesus was going to be arrested, they panicked because they thought if they were going to be without Christ, they're going to be without truth. And so Jesus made an astonishing promise to them. He said in John 16, beginning in verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. It'd be too much for you. It'd be too overwhelming. And then he makes this promise. When the spirit of truth comes, the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now listen to this phenomenal statement. All that the father has, all the truth that the father wants to reveal to mankind, all that the father has is mine. And that makes sense. Since Jesus is God, he possesses all the truth. Then he says, therefore, I said that he, the Holy Spirit, will take what is mine and declare it to you. That all the truth that is the Father's, that he desires to give to mankind, will be given. And because the truth is our spiritual treasure, so that no truth of Christ will be lost Jesus also promised them in John 14, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Did he do it? Hold up your Bible. He did. Let's be charismatic for a moment. Hold up your Bible. What's the, what's the front called? It's called the beginning. What's the back called? The end. What did God do through Christ? He gave us all the truth and then he said, cherish it. Guard it. To not see the truth as our treasure is disastrous. In fact, it indicates that you are in a lost state. Paul warned in 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The truth is our spiritual treasure. It is the content of true preaching. It is what Jude calls the faith once delivered, once for all delivered to the saints. In fact, truth is such a treasure that those who present the truth, the shepherds of God's people, we are called to be diligent. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling means to cut it straight, to divide the word of God like a surgeon divides flesh so carefully to do exactly the right thing. Truth is our spiritual treasure. Let me give you another benefit as I hope to convince you to bring truth into your home. Truth is a means to joy. Truth is a means to joy. The beloved disciple of love, John, as an old man, he writes to, writes to Gaius, who's a, a leader in, in a local church. And he writes in Third John, verses 3 and 4, For I rejoice greatly that when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. What does it mean to walk in the truth? It's very simple. It means to live a life of devotion to the commands of Christ because you love him. To do anything and everything he says without question, without hesitation. 
of humbling yourself before the Lord in all things. And John says for him, that is the greatest of all of his joys. It's the greatest joy. The Gentiles in Pisidian Antioch, they heard the gospel from the preaching of Paul and Barnabas. And Paul quoted from Isaiah to these Gentiles. He says in Acts 13, 47, he says, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, here he quotes from Isaiah, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And at this truth, Acts 13, 48 says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. When was the last time you glorified the word of the Lord? When was the last time that you thanked God for not making you guess? Do you understand that we are the most blessed of all people on earth because you will come to the last moments of your life safe and secure? You know exactly what's going to happen. You know why. You know who you're about to meet and what it's going to be like. You have all the answers that for thousands of years mankind has been clawing for and you have them. You have every assurance. Truth is the means to joy. One more benefit to truth This truth, which points us to God's character, which is experienced in gospel obedience, which replaces selfishness, is the pathway to Christ-likeness, is our spiritual treasure, and is a means to joy. How about this benefit? You ready for this? Truth will comfort you forever. Truth will comfort you forever. In 2 John, verses 1 and 2, John writes, The elder to the elect lady and her children, this is to a church, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth. You think that John is all about the truth? Because of the truth that abides in us, listen to this, and will be with us forever. And that makes sense to us that if we're going to be with the God of truth forever, of course, then we'll be with the content of his truth as well. We can prove that this is happening right now. This is illustrated in heaven. In Isaiah's famous vision of the heavenly throne room, Isaiah 6, beginning in verse 1, we hear, in the, word, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Isn't it great that since we're in the presence of God, we don't need to talk about the truth anymore? No, one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The saints in heaven in Revelation 5 shout, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. That's a gospel presentation in heaven. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing proclaiming comforting truth. In heaven, you will see and perhaps even touch the very scars of Jesus Christ, a perpetual reminder of the truth of the substitutionary death which purchased your entrance into heaven. Even today, we're going to take the Lord's table and we take the Lord's table to be reminded of the truth of the gospel of the broken body and shed blood of Christ. And yet, when Jesus initiated the Lord's table, on the night of the last Passover, he, he told the disciples something interesting. And it has massive implications. He said in Luke 22, beginning of verse 17, he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. And here's the interesting thing he said, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. What's the implication? After I've gone to the cross, after I've been raised from the dead, after I've ascended into heaven, after I've interceded for you, and after I've brought all of you home to me, once again, we'll pick up the cup in sort of a divine, now where were we? And we will rehearse the truth of the gospel, the truth of the blood of Christ, the truth of the body of Christ, once again. Won't it be great to take the cup to remember the blood of Christ and now have him lead us in person? Not in remembrance, but in person. The truth will comfort you forever. So many benefits to truth, so many benefits. Hopefully I've convinced you of the prime importance of imparting biblical truth. So I want to talk to you for a moment. I'm sorry about the benefits of truth. Now I want to talk to you about imparting the truth. 
to your children. I just want to give you kind of a laundry list. Seven ways to impart truth. And these are obvious to us, I think. Seven ways to impart truth. First, with a steady diet of the Bible. With a steady diet of the Bible. Read the Bible to them. Have them read the Bible as part of their daily routine. Or as Charles Spurgeon said, let them read their first lessons in the Bible. Sing the truths of the Bible in your home. This is why we sing hymns. Because hymns are just scriptures rearranged in musical fashion. And we rehearse the truth. Make your children read Proverbs numerous times so that later in life they can rehearse that wisdom. Here's a second way to impart the truth in your home. Impart the truth with the example of the priority of preaching and teaching. Impart the truth with the example of the priority of preaching and teaching. If your family is constantly in church, constantly in Sunday school, constantly faithful to your small group, your children will learn that naturally. In fact, they will get to the point that if you alter your routine, they'll say, how come we're not going to church as much anymore? Listen, there is a school of thought based on the misuse of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6 that says that fathers are solely responsible for the spiritual instruction of their children. First of all, that's nonsense. And second of all, the Apostle Paul disproves that in Ephesians 6 because he's not the dad of these kids and yet he's giving them instruction. And so we utilize the church. We utilize the teachers that the church has been given by God. Listen to sermons as a family. Talk about sermons. If you are faithful in bringing your children to Grace Bible Church every week, you ought to have the discussion, what did you learn this week? That's natural. That's easy. And listen, once the bug to listen to preaching catches on with your kids, you have essentially done your job. Because for the rest of their lives, they will look to the preached word, to the taught word, to bring them to obedience. Here's a third way to impart the truth. Impart the truth with demonstrated marriage priority. Demonstrated marriage priority. One of the greatest gifts you can give your children in the truth is the truth of a God-pleasing marriage. Model that marriage is the most important relationship in the family. It's the foundation of the family. It's the glue of the family. And you begin this even when they're babies. And I want to give you an example of doing this when they're babies. And before I give you my next thought, would you remember the admonition of James concerning hearing the word of God? Know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak. And what's the next one? Slow to anger. Okay, now that you've got that, would you trust me for a moment? I want to caution all of you precious, wonderful young couples because we have a pregnancy rate of moms getting pregnant every four minutes around here. I want to caution young couples having children to seriously consider staying away from the concept of the family bed. The family bed is sometimes called co-sleeping. First of all, the fact that so many secular sources recommend this leads me to find it suspect. But the family bed is used to help infants and mothers sleep better and to emotionally bond at a deeper level with parents. And that's the reasoning behind it. This is not a pastoral opinion. This is straight out of what Scripture says is a priority for your family. What message does the family bed put forward in the, children, in the family? It puts forward the message that the children now trump the marriage relationship. Yes, when it thunders. Yes, when your child has a bad dream and the little feet come running down the hall. Absolutely. Many a mom and dad bedroom have comforted us on a stormy night. But the practice of making the family bed replace the marriage bed has serious spiritual ramifications down the road because essentially the child has taken the place of the husband quite literally in his place. The writer of Hebrews commands in Hebrews 13, 4, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Now in context, he's speaking of staying away from sexual immorality. I merely point out, what did he call the bed? The marriage bed. That's just one illustration. Keep the marriage a priority and you are doing your children such a favor of presenting them truth that will benefit them for a lifetime. Here's another way to impart the truth. This is so simple. Impart the truth with theological prayers. With theological prayers. If you're still praying, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. How long have you been at Grace Bible Church? 
Get beyond praying childish prayers with children. Pray the truths of the gospel. Pray the attributes of God. Pray the books of the Bible. Thank you, Lord, for Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Thank you for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and for Peter. Pray all the theology you can think of. Use mealtime prayer to remember much more than the food. Not just bless this food to our bodies, bless the spiritual food of the word of God which teaches me that the cross of Christ is the only way to salvation. Bless that food to my soul. Pray at night before bed and focus at times on the glories of God not just praying for personal needs. Pray theological prayers. It's so simple. Here's another way. Impart the truth with family discussions that gravitate toward biblical responses. That's a long sentence. Let me give it to you again. Impart the truth with family discussions that gravitate toward biblical responses. In other words, use teachable moments to say, what does the Bible say about this? If a child comments on how a school friend keeps getting into trouble, talk about what the Bible says about submission to authority. If a child has an attitude problem, let the discussion gravitate toward what kind of attitude the Lord would desire. Talk about what your, as a child, what your biblical response is. Insist on proper verbal responses from the time they can talk. This teaches them to respond to others biblically and respectfully. Remember what Jesus said? He said in Luke 6.45 that out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. In context, he's speaking of the fact that a wicked man reveals his wicked heart because of what comes out of his mouth. If you allow disrespectful speech or non-responsive speech, then you're giving your children permission to maintain the wickedness of their own heart. So discuss things that gravitate toward biblical responses. Impart the truth with family orderliness. With family orderliness. If you can't get your family organized, then you can't have time to spend shepherding your children. An orderly family creates an environment in which truth thrives. And this goes along with marriage and relationships in the family. Husbands, how you treat your wives either contributes to family orderliness orderliness or to chaos. Wives, how you treat your husband has the same impact. And for for you parents, you start controlling your infant's schedule as soon as possible. Don't tell me that the infant uh, has to control my whole life. Teach them the truth of submission and security. Teach them when they're little bitty that crying in their crib does not guarantee that you're going to go running every time. I mean, infants are not complex creatures. Frankly, I think having a puppy is more complex. The infant has a dirty diaper, is hungry, or doesn't feel well. If those three things aren't in place, the crying is probably either just expressing himself or having a tantrum. Yes, infants have tantrums. But you create family orderliness. And that gives you the basis to impart truth. One more, and this is the most important one. Impart truth with the continual proclamation of the gospel. Impart truth with a continual proclamation of the gospel. You may fail in everything else. You may say, Pastor Steve, not only am I going to ignore your advice on the family bed, I'm putting all my kids in bed until they turn 18. Ha! Okay, at least share the gospel with them while they're there ruining your marriage. (laughs) Proclaim Christ to them. That wasn't even meant to be funny. That's just true. As parents, and I called this series on purpose, Parenting for God's glory. You might do a lot of things right. You might be really good at hygiene. You might have a clean house. You might feed your kids healthy food. But if you don't proclaim the gospel to them, then you failed. You might do everything else wrong. But if you proclaim the gospel to them, you succeeded. And so your success as a parent is in really your own hands. You might not be a great evangelist, but you might be raising one and so proclaim the gospel. Charles Spurgeon contemplated biblical parenting often. Let me give you five more pieces of advice from our 19th century brother. He said, if we never have headaches through rebuking our children, we will have plenty of heartaches when they grow up. Teach the little ones the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Tell him he must be born again. Be tender, but be true. 
He said, gather the little ones around your knee and listen to their words, suggesting to them their needs and reminding them of God's gracious promises. And then he said, set before your child life and death, heaven and hell, judgment and mercy, his own sin and Christ's most precious blood. And I would add today that if you don't know Christ, parenting your children or being a faithful child in the home is the least of your concerns. And I would join our brother Charles in setting before you life and death and heaven and hell, judgment and mercy and your own sin and Christ's own precious blood. That is your issue today. And I would hope that you would choose life, that you would choose heaven, that you would choose mercy, and that you would choose Christ's precious blood. Let's pray. Our Father, as we consider how we are to be fathers and mothers, we are naturally drawn to you as our Father. You're the, you're the model, you're the original, you're the prototype, you're the, you're the one who makes parenting understandable because you are the first and the primary parent. And as a parent, how devastating it must have been to see your precious son nailed to a cross, to see him die, to see him suffer such agonies that you willingly allowed him to go through, that he willingly went through voluntarily, all so that you could give to him later a kingdom filled with kingdom subjects, kingdom citizens who have been saved by that very shed blood. And so we know that all the struggles and agonies we have as parents You've experienced them a thousand times over. And it is through that shed blood that we now continue to worship and we have the joy and the opportunity to do as the Lord Jesus commanded. He didn't ask us much. He, he, he said that when you come to faith in Christ, demonstrate it publicly by being baptized and throughout the course of your life, take the time to remember the body and the blood of Jesus to take the Lord's table. And that is our privilege this morning. We pray your blessing on this, the highlight of our worship, the Lord's table. We pray in Christ's name, amen.